1: This is the 19th T podcast, Kieran Marsh, Nathan Drudy with you, Drudster. I'm very excited for our guest this week, but I must admit when I was pulling together the introduction, I struggled to land on how to describe him because mm. this man wears maybe more hats than anyone else in Australian golf. So obviously a former player, uh, architect, most recently a caddy, he's a rider, statesman i'd say maybe a generalist is a word that's it's employment speak these days but he, he could be the great golf generalist of australia i speak of course of michael clayton who's been very kind enough to join us on the show Clayton, welcome to the 19th tee. thank
2: you thanks for that kind of wild introduction but um, i guess i've done all those things
1: over the years it's uh it's it's phenomenal that we've we've managed to i suppose we've been talking about having a chat to michael clayton for the best part of two years on this podcast and I think we get you at such a good time because you've got your finger in so many different pies at the moment. I think where we want to start um, is is kind of your most recent or, or I suppose most current day-to-day job and that is on the bag of young Elvis Smiley. So talk us through the last couple of weeks. It's been um, probably a little up and down for Elvis. Uh, we've had him as a previous guest on this podcast and I, I must admit, Clay, so I've never found a 20-year-old to make me feel more illiterate than Elvis. did. An incredibly impressive young man and very well-spoken and obviously has some remarkable ambitions that match his talent. It's been, a, I suppose, a challenging summer for him at times, but I'm sure that there's no better view in the house than for you and what you see as what could be a phenomenal career in front of him.
2: Well, you played OK at the PGA at Royal Queensland. He was finished 12th and kind of scraped it around for him, really. He was up and down seven for seven out of the bunkers on Saturday, which turned 76 into 70, which was good. And he made a few putts at the end. So 12th was a decent week. And I, where did he go after that? I didn't carry for, oh, he missed a cut. Um, nudgy, I didn't carry for him there. Then he came to the Vic Open and missed the cut there by one. Played funny, it was a funny cut. It's a 50 cut, including the women. So it's kind of, you know, it's a tricky cut to make He shot. One under there, missed by one. Went to the Vic Open and played okay, finished 20th. Not too bad, eight under. And then I went back to my real job. I was down in Hobart at Seven Mile Beach with Mike DeVries and Lucas and Urian. Uh I was down there last week, so I missed. Where did he play last week? He played at Cobben Beruga, mm. where he missed a cut again. So he's uh, been a little up and down this summer, but he was... The start of the year, he was terrific. Last year, he was second at Rosebud, third at Bonnie Doon, and second at Concord. So, he's he's going well. I mean, I, and, you know, he's 19. I mean, the thing I um, remember the first time I saw Greg Norman play was 974 in the Interstate Junior Series. So he was almost the same age as Elvis is now. He was, he was 19 and playing... I think he, I mean, he was playing number one for Queensland, but he won... Two matches out of five, and he was clearly going to be very good. But you know, we expect a lot of nineteen-year-olds now. When you think that Greg was nineteen and playing in the Queensland junior team,
0: how how good do you think he can be, Clates? I no, mean, he, he you know,
2: he's got time on his side.
0: He does. How good do you think he can be, mate? Because I think when we spoke to him, we we both walked away and went like he, he could be a PGA Tour winner. He could be a major winner. Like his game is so good for a 19-year-old and he's so level, I think, to Marshy's point before. How good do you think he can be? He's got the, the world at his feet for a 19-year-old, really.
2: Yeah, it's, it's always dangerous to kind of predict stuff, you know, how 19-year-olds are going to play. I. Um, it's fun, though. It is fun. <laughs> yeah. You know. um, I play with Adam Scott. There's a story about predictions. Um, at the Vic Open at Cranbourne in 1999, so he was 19, I think. About, and I, the guy I was playing with said, "What's this kid like?" I said, "I don't know. I've seen a picture of his swing in the magazine. I think he's pretty good." <laughs> he had a. I've told this story a hundred times. Hit this wicked snap hook off the first tee. Tried to ch- try to chip it out of the trees. And he's at the tree. And he, Barely hit the ball, and he chipped it out and hit it over the back of the green and got it up and down for six on the <laughs> easiest par five you've ever seen. So I said to this guy, I said, Well, I guess he's not that good. <laughs> so then he he smashed it down the second hole, and we're going in with seven irons. He had a sandwich to about a foot, made, made three, eight irons to six foot. The next birdie, where's to a foot at the next birdie? Beautiful three iron into the greenside bunker at the par five, flipped it out to a foot birdie. 25-footer at the next for Birdie. And as I walked on the seventh tee, I said, I said, can you believe how good this kid is? <laughs> it was like... So it didn't take a genius to work out that Adam Scott was going to be really good. And Elvis is kind of, you know, you think he's in that class. He's got a great swing. He hits the ball well, plays well. He's had some good results. He's had some bad results, but that's predictable for 9 year olds starting out. When we were 19, it was inconceivable that... I don't think there was one under 20-year-old in a state senior team in the country. It was almost inconceivable that a junior could make a state senior amateur team. And here he is, 19. And seventeen. 17, I carried for him in the Australian. He was like 30th in the Australian Open. And, you know, he's nearly
1: winning... I mean,
2: not big tour events, but decent-sized tour events down here. So we'll see, but he's good.
1: Clayton, if there's one thing more dangerous than predicting individuals' futures, it may well be predicting the the future of generations. And, and I, I want to ask you this about what you've observed, you know, caddying for him, not just this year, but you, you've done so for a little while now. And, and you look at the class that he's coming through because... I suppose you look at what we have produced at the world stage now and, and you've got the, I suppose, the the Scott and Day generation kind of which drags into Leishman and then to a lesser extent Smith, who's just emerging now as one of the, the Australian powerhouses on the women's side. Obviously, Hannah Green's a major winner. Minji Lee's doing phenomenal things. Suo's making a name for herself on the LPGA. But you look at kind of people around Elvis's age, both on the male and female side, and, and you would have seen it firsthand in these tournaments you've been on his bag. But... Just in terms of his class out of the QAS, it was himself, Jed Morgan now, the Australian PGA champion. Louis Dobler's making a name for himself. Young Laurie Flynn um, may well be uh, the the most silky of the lot on the women's side. You've got Karis Davison, Grace Kim, Cassie Porter, only turned pro this year, and she's, you know, a couple of top five finishes in her first four starts. It's amazing this generation that's coming through now, and I wonder, given the first-hand view you've had of it um, in the last couple of years, what you what you see in the future in the next 10 to 15 years of Australian golf and how that might project onto the, the world stage.
2: Yeah, it's always like we were talking about. It. It's hard to predict. Uh, we played with Cassie at uh, Rosebud. She's like really good. She played really well. Um, there's a kid called Amelia Harris, who's from Cairns, now lives in Melbourne, who played in uh, the Sandball Invitational, the tournament, Jeff Ogilvie, and I ran at Royal Melbourne, Kingston, and Peninsula. I watched her play and like, she's amazingly good. She's 13. But I, I've said to a lot of people, you, know, there are, you go to any one of these tournaments and there are 30 or 40 kids who, if they were playing on the tour in 1980 when I started, they would have had the best swing on the tour. Not, you know, They wouldn't have beaten David Graham or Bob Shearer or Graham Marshall. Um, well, they definitely wouldn't have beaten Greg. But they all had better goal swings so there are so many technically good swings now that some of them are going to be really good who knows who they're going to be but I mean Jed's been kind of he beat okay for Elvis in the amateur that Jed won he played him in the last eight it was the closest match he had he beat Elvis three and two and then he kind of you know COVID hit and he didn't do a whole lot and he turned up at Royal Queensland and played a phenomenal tournament so he when he plays well he's terrific We played with Louis. I think we played with Louis. We played with Louis Um, I think the first two rounds at Royal Queensland and he's a terrific player. So uh, there were good players all over the country who, who, you know, let's see how they go. And the girls are um, Amelia Harris, like I said, she's a, I mean, she's 13, who knows, but she shot 86, which sounds terrible at Kingston Heath in the first round, but we had the course set up way longer than well longer than what hannah played in last week because we we kind of handicapped it by changing the pars. the men played past 70 women played past 72 so she shot 86 at kinks but as jeff said it was every day was like sunday at the men's australian open and she shot 82 at royal melbourne and shot 74 76 at Yarra and peninsula and i watched her players like wow she's really good like great swing hits the ball really well great temperament so you know there are kids out there who and who knows she might be playing golf when she's 17 but i don't get the feeling that that's going to happen and janith wong who's plays at metro where, where i play in melbourne she's kind of dominated victorian amateur golf for the last couple of years and she's kind of tiny maybe maybe five foot but she's pretty good too like really good and you know Cutsy play, plays quickly. Doesn't bitch and moan and carry on like we all used to. And got a great temperament and just loves to play. It's great fun to watch her play. So, you now there there are a bunch of kids out there who got a chance to be really good.
0: I guess it's it's an interesting segue into a question. I wasn't sure where we were going to get to this, but how, what have you made of the past two years of golf in Australia? I mean, me and Marshy have been fairly critical of the way I guess the pandemic was managed um, by our governing bodies. And we, we felt at times there could be, could have been more done to support our players, whether they're the young generation that you've just mentioned 10 or 15 names there, or whether it's the older guys who are at the back ends of their career, like in Matt Miller's, uh, et cetera. How have you sort of assessed that past two years and what impacts do you think that might've had on some of those younger players or, or just the tour in general? Cause I, I think, we can all agree pretty universally that the Australian tour isn't what it was thirty years ago, where we were having Greg Norman and and you know even earlier than that, big international players come back. So I guess how do you kind of put all that together in your head, being so ingrained in the game, Clates?
2: Well, it's for a kid like Elvis, it's hasn't been too bad because he's nineteen and it's not you can you know, you can miss a year or two out of your career at 19 and it's not going to kill you. But like Blake Collier, who, Blake was, he finished second a couple of weeks ago. Some uh, Where did he finish second at? Vic Open? No, somewhere. Um, Vic, Vic Open, maybe? I think it was the Vic Open, yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, and he played by last week until the last stage, got 63, 75 on the weekend. But 25 and two years out of career is really not great because those, you need to be, at that point, you need to be, Going to tour schools and playing tour schools. So it's hurt those guys a lot. Uh, the tour, yeah, it was disappointing they didn't play the Australian Open. You know, I think it was kind of a bit of when I, mean, I think the local guys are good enough to carry it. Mm-hmm. And they could have played it for, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the deal with the New South Wales government or the sponsors is or was, but, you know, it seems to me like they could have played some sort of Australian Open and just played it. Um, And it was the reason Jeff and I put on the Sandbox Tournament because Mm. there was nothing to play on. Yeah. You know, we've got to put something on. And fortunately, Daniel Andrews is a golf lover and he, you know, arranged through Visit Victoria to get, you know, some sort of funding for it. And it was a, you know, I think it's going to turn into a great tournament. So it needs, I mean, the tour, when I played it, when it was thriving, survived on state open, state PGA's, the uh, Australian Open, three tournaments in New Zealand, and guys like Frank Williams and David English who ran the Masters, and Bob Toohey who ran the West Lakes Classic and the New- Bob ran about two, two or three, or maybe three tournaments. So it was a mix of private promoters, state PGA, state golf associations, and Open and the Australian PGA. That was what the tour was, and that's been you know dissipated somewhat because we've lost the private promoters out of the game. Mm. Not any private motives. You know, I mean, Frank Williams and David Ingers turned the masters from a from a pretty ragtag tournament the first year they ran it in 1979 into a brilliant tournament. But in the end, you know, they they sold it because IMG made them sell it to IMG. And in the end, it got run into the ground because IMG didn't have the passion for that tournament that Frank and David did. It was Frank and David's job, 360 years five days a year really certainly 364 days a year they, you know, perhaps they took christmas day off <laughs> but i mean those guys turned that into a phenomenal tournament so that's what jeff and i want to do with the Sandbelt tournament but you know i think what's happened the last year or two is that what it's showing is that we don't have enough women stars to carry women's only events we do if we have the australian open and it's co sanctioned by the LPGA, which makes it a great tournament. And we don't have enough men's stars to carry a men's tournament unless they all come back. And they, I mean, when was the last time Jason played here? So, and Leishman and Badley and, you know, Adam has been great, but there have been a few guys that have been missing in action. So, but I think if you combine the men and women, we've got enough good players to create decent events. So, Hannah was. You know, the last two weeks of hers have been terrific. Sue played well at the, at the PGA at Royal Queensland. So if we can get, and I think, you know, I think we can talk Kari into coming back and playing. Sue played with Kari. I played with Sue today at Sandringham when we were talking about Kari. She played with her in that tournament in Florida three or four weeks ago. And she said, still, she still hits the ball. I can't believe how well she still hits the ball. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and she's kind of... sure she made the cut that weekend. Yeah, she played well, and, you know, her short game's not that sharp, and, I mean, Kari's pretty hard on herself, and 20 years of... When she started 1995, so, you know, 25 years of grinding out in the tour will wear you out. So, you know, I'm not sure she's ready to come back and play full-time, but if we can get Curry to come back and play in Australia three or four times a year with, you know, and Hannah and Sue and get Minwuda playing Minji and, you know, the best guys, and have mixed events like we've had then I think that's obviously the future for Australian golf because we're not in the game I mean I'm not sure what's going to happen to this Saudi tour now that Bryson Mm. and uh, Mm. Johnson are out of it seemingly but um, you know we're not in that race in terms of appearance money but if we can get the best Australians to come back and play so so we've had three different formats we've had uh, the Vic Open which is two separate fields We had the the Rosebud and Corbin Baruga, which is same field, women playing a much shorter golf course, same par. And we had the Sandbelt Tournament, which was same field, but different pars. So we played Royal Melbourne Yarra Yarra, 70 for the men, 72 for the women. Kingston Heath 72 for the men, 74 for the women. Peninsula, 71, 73. So essentially the women had an eight-shot handicap which is a bad way of putting it, but we played the women's course way longer than they've played it in the other tournaments. We played around just under 6,000 metres. I, I don't think that our girls are going to get any better if we play 5,500, 600 metre courses mm, mm. in an attempt to even the scores out because they're just pitch and putt courses. Yeah. So Hannah goes out and shoots 20 under par and wins the tournament, but she would admit that it was a pitch and putt affair. So... For all those girls to get better, they've got to start playing LPGA-length courses. And they can't beat the men in the same field playing a course that long. So you handicap it by, or you adjust the par. So handicap's a bad word, but you know, if you play the 12th at Royal Melbourne, 435 metres, par four for the men, which it is, par five for the women. And at, at the end of the week, because you've adjusted the pars, there's an eight-shot difference. And I think that's the best way to play it because I think it gives the women a chance to realistically assess how good they are. Sorry, assess how good they are. But if you just stick them on the forward tees in an attempt to even up the scores, then it's kind of a, you know, you're kind of getting a false score, I think, because it's nowhere mm-hmm. near what they're going to face when they play the LBJ Tour in America. And that's what you're training them for. That's the whole point of this tour is to give the kids the skills and the experience to go and play overseas. If they go overseas and play the LPGA Tour on courses that are still too short, but 500 yards longer than they're playing here, then that's not how they're going to get better.
1: Clyde, so you mentioned the, the the private promoters that used to be in the game and, and, and how much they drove, I suppose, the momentum and the energy that used to be in the Tour here in Australia. I wonder, in, in your estimation, what the roadblock is to someone like that coming back. Because I, I refuse to believe, given... Um, I suppose, the demographic of, of, of golf community here in Australia are predominantly. So there's there's wealth there that you would think they have a passion enough for the game that they'd invest in order to bring people here. But I don't know whether or not we've got potentially the right structure or the right people involved to unlock that potential. We seem so tied to state governments and their funding and yeah. their ability to bring tournaments into states. We seem to have an inflexibility in our schedule. I mean, if we're going to play our major tournaments when the PGA Tour is kicking off in Hawaii each and every year, then what what incentive other than cash, which we can't seem to unlock, is there for anyone to come home? So I wonder what you think is the big blocker at the moment to to bringing those people back into the fold, because they must be out there. They must have a passion and be ready to invest.
2: Well, I mean, Frank and David made a good living, and, and Tony Rosenberg ran the Heineken tournament, Bob Turi ran his tournaments. You know those guys made a good living out of running golf tournaments. So So you need entrepreneurs who can pick up an event, start an event and fill it. Like they can make money out of it. Now it's, you know, it's more difficult because the parents' money's gone through the roof. You know, you, you've got to, I mean, the masters started off as a, let me guess, a $60,000 tournament, you know, So to get off the ground, now you're to attract any sort of field, you've got to start at a million dollars probably. Mm. So, you know, you, you, you need people to go, bang on doors of corporate Australia with, with a vision and a passion and, and, and try and unlock some of that money. You know, you know do corporate Australia want to back golf? I guess that's the question. And, you know, it's, a certainly, a, it's certainly, a, certainly a lot of corporate executives who play golf. The question is, they care enough about golf to invest in it. And, you know, the thing that's really killed our tour, or one thing that's really killed it is the wraparound tour in America. I mean, the US tour, couldn't care less about golf outside of the PGA Tour. But when the tour finished, well, when when the season started in January, if Cam Smith and Mark Leishman and Aaron Badley and Jeff Ogilvie and you know Robert Allenby, if they'd they all had good years, if they'd made all their money by September or October, they could come home and play free of being worried about guys getting an eight tournament head start on them for when they turned up in the middle of January and found themselves three million dollars behind the guys leading the main list. So of course they want to finish up the FedEx Cup, but then they're pretty much playing the next week, getting the following season started. So that's killed our tour really, because it really stops those guys coming back and playing here. And if we run the Australian Open sure, I mean some of them would come back, but you know, at some point, you know, if you listen to Andy, Andy Johnson and, and the guys on the Fried Egg podcast in America, Americans who slaughter their tour, slaughter the PGA Tour, because they, you know, they say they play way too much. It's it's a 50-week, it's a never-ending, non-stop mm. circus of 72-hole professional tournaments that everyone's fed up with. Mm. So, you know, their argument is stop the tour after the FedEx Cup and give it a rest. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's, you know, perhaps that's partly bought on the Saudi thing, or, or, which is separate from the Premier Golf League, which is still, I assume, still bubbling along in corporate offices in London. I'm not sure when they're going to show their hand. But, you know, at some point, you hope the PGA Tour decides that playing 50 or whatever they play, I mean, what do they play, 48 times? A year, I don't know. It is too much. Mm. And... Give the rest of the world a break. I mean, there used to be great tournaments in Japan at the end of the year, where the best Americans would go and play in Japan. Seve would go and play twi- twice. Seve would come and play twice a year in Australia and twice a year in Japan at the end of the year. Now, Seve's equivalent, say Rory McIlroy, he's not doing that. He's just staying in America and playing in America. So it's, you know, in some ways, as, you know, as much as I detested the what the Saudi thing stood for, you know, the PJ could do everyone, a, the PJ Tour could do everyone a favour. Including themselves by playing a bit less, and that would certainly help out to it. because it would free our guys up to come home and play. So-
0: I think it's it's really <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting though. Like I think you look at the it's a great point that you make about the calendar. I probably haven't really thought that through in in its full extent, but I feel like we've been so reticent to to even explore other options to change. And, and if you look at the way that sport's gone in this country, you look at the success of the Big Bash in the past nine years, albeit it's probably waning a little, if there are alternative formats of the game out there, and, and I think of Blitz Golf, who you know we're massive supporters of what they do, is there an opportunity for a six-week Blitz Golf League to run around the state and really fire uh, around the country and find new people to bring into the game? Because, I mean, I love golf. I co-host a podcast on golf where we talk about it for three hours every week, but I can't bring myself to watch 72 holes of golf across four days. It's a lot of golf to wait for four days for a result. It's the same with test match cricket. It's the same with a lot of other sports. So I'm wondering if there are alternative formats of the game. And I think that's why your tournament was so successful down in the sandbelt. It was something different. And I guess, you know, do you think there's an appetite for that? within golfing fraternities and around the country to just explore alternative formats of the game?
2: Well, I think they're kind of doing that with, you know, I think they'll finish up with a mixed Australian Open at some point. Uh, the the Vic Open with the men's and women's field. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Vic Open was a great tournament when the LPGA and the European Tour Was a, I mean, but it was a, wasn't a was a great tournament. The US Open was a great tournament, so it's not confused greatly. <laughs> yeah. But, but it was a... Um, it was a great event where the people of the Bellarine Plincher and Geelong embraced it and loved walking the fairways, bring your dog, you know, free entry, easy car parking. Access, you know, it's a really cool event. That's, so, you know, I think that's really innovative. So Niall Horan's manager of One Direction fame came down here and started the same event in Northern Ireland a year later. So, you know, I think we've been incredibly innovative. I mean, I must admit I've never watched a big batch game of cricket I don't watch test cricket either, but I can listen to test cricket on the radio all day. Driving, I love listening to cricket on the radio. Mm. I love listening to golf on the radio, but I don't watch much golf. Um, I listen to more podcasts than I do watch golf. But, and I watch the majors and, you know, the players championship and, and I love to go and watch live golf. But, you know, I, golf on TV is not doing it for me at all, but to me, the thrill is actually going and watching golf live. So, this is a bigger point, but part of the problem with the Australian Open is that I'm old enough to remember when it was in Hobart in 1971, 51 years ago, then Adelaide the next year, 72, Royal Queensland, 73, Lake carrying up 74, and that was the end of it. But there was this rotation that, that had gone on in, in the 50s and 60s, which I thought was great for the Open, because every six years you kind of knew it was coming around and coming back why would anyone in Perth care about the Australian Open when they haven't seen it for almost 50 years? It's ridiculous. Mm. Mm. But we've got into this, you know, the the trap of, and it's been lucrative for golf, of of state governments essentially buying the Open. And, you know, it's been in Sydney since 2005 or six. So no one's really... It was going to be in Melbourne at Kingston in 2020 and got cancelled. It's in uh, Victoria this year. So that's the first time it's been out of Sydney in a long time. But the Open needs to go in the country. We need more mixed events. You know, I think we can do, you know, one-day blitz golf things um, in tournament weeks at different courses, perhaps, or, you know, or, you know, I mean, the Portsea Pro-Am was a great tournament. Mm. You know, we lost, the, you know, Bob Shearer was a stalwart of the Portsea Pro-Am, Jeff Ogilvie, John Vanderveld played the year after he lost the British Open. So, was, I mean, that was a really cool one-day event on the 2nd of January that, Got a really big crowd because it was you know there were footballers there and cricketers and it was a kind of cool crazy event. So there's certainly room for innovative golf, but I mean I'm too much of a um, uh, you know, lover of the, the old style form of the game. You know, I love watching 72, 72 I love being at seventy two hole golf tournaments, but I'm like you, know, I don't love watching them. I'm not going to sit down and watch Thursday at Riviera. No, just not not interested. And that's partly the problem with the P... Well, it's part. It's partly the well. It's not the PGA Tour's problem because PJ Tour doesn't have a problem. You know, they're you know they're giving Phil Mickelson eight million dollars and he's crying about obnoxious greed two months later. Geez, <laughs> give me a break. But um, now the US two is doing fine. I mean, you know the the one thing that I mean I was never a good enough player to be a part of it. But you know I think if Seve and Nick Price and Norman and Faldo and Lyle and Langer and um, Dennis Watson and, the, and the, the best Graham Marsh non-American players had gotten together in 1980, when Norman was established, Stephanie was a two-time major champion. Faldo and Langer were just obviously going to be stars. If those guys had all gotten together and said, let's create a great world tour that wasn't predicated on a few of them getting super rich, but creating something that was a great world tour that went through Japan, South Africa, Asia, Australia, New Zealand and Europe, Britain and Europe. They, they could have created something that by now would have been way bigger than the US tour. But whether they didn't have the foresight or they didn't, you know, they were, in fairness, they were 24 years old. So it needed someone to sell that concept to them and for them to embrace it and say, okay, screw the Americans, we're gonna create something that's equivalent to the Formula One kind of racing circuit and create 35 great tournaments around the world. And that would have been the Great World Tour, as opposed to what Greg and Rupert Murdoch proposed in whenever that was, 1992 or three. Mm. And then Greg with his, uh, you know, his elephantine memory and, you know, lusting for revenge on on the tour, trying to create this sad thing. Well, that's kind of not what the game needs, I don't think. It doesn't need a bunch of super rich guys getting even more rich and blowing up the US Tour. You know, as much as I dislike what the US Tour has done to the World Tour or the Australian Tour in Europe, you know, it doesn't need blowing up either. So, you know, the question is, how do you look 30 years into the future and create... You know, for me, I still think there's there's a place for a great world tour for, for the players out you know for non-American players who don't want to live in America the problem is there's so much money in America now that why well, wouldn't you want to live in America you know, yeah it's, it's, so but it's a pretty uninteresting one dimensional tour that makes a whole lot of guys really rich I think you create something that's way more interesting if you went through South Africa you know you started in South Africa, Japan, Australia, New Zealand drag Canada in because the Canadian Open has been screwed by the US tour Europe and, and Britain you can make a phenomenal tour
0: it's I think it's the pipe dream of most golf fans is to, to have that and I think the PGL is kind of looking at something similar to that in, in what I can understand it's obviously very different to the, the Saudi piece Is just I mean it, listeners to this show will know our thoughts very clearly on what the Saudis have proposed but one one uh, that I did want to mention, just around your tournament that you ran down there, is it – how do you feel that the PGA Tour of Australasia doesn't have a tour stop in the sand belt? I feel like it's it, – it, there's so many courses that have made tournaments their home. I mean, you look at the Vic, Vic Open and what yeah. happened down at 13th Beach, and that's fantastic. But it we were talking a couple of weeks ago, KM, that it just seems criminal that we have one of the best, if not the best – area of golf in the world and we don't play a tournament on in any of the courses is that am i on the mark with something there or or is it well, the members aren't interested or no, what, no, what do no, you think it is
2: no that's no the members absolutely are interested well we had the president's cup in 19 mm-hmm. and we were going to have the open at kinks in 20 we've got the open of victoria in 22 this year yeah so so it was really only one year but you're right, which is why we started the Sandbelt tournament, that the Sandbelt needs an annual tournament. And we had the Masters at Honeydale and we lost whatever or, you know, 30 years ago. We had the Coca-Cola at Royal Melbourne, we had the Heineken at Royal Melbourne, we had the match play at Kingston Heath, we had the Vic Open that, that went around the Sandbelt. We, we had, I mean, one, 1989, I think we played, or 87, we played five tournaments in a row in Melbourne. But the Victorian PGA at Keysborough, match play at Kingston Heath, pick open at Kingston Heath in consecutive weeks, uh, the Coca-Cola at uh, Royal Melbourne. And we played another one somewhere else. So, so but you're right, you know, there needs to be an annual tournament in the summer, which I think is what our tournament's going to turn into. I think we'll turn that into what the Australian Masters was. Awesome. So that's kind of the plan um, and the vision. So I, I think we can... Do that. So that'll be, it. I think it's rather than get having it, well, it, got, it was at it Huntingdale for however long it was, you know, 20 years, and then went to, we played one Metro, a couple of Victoria, the Tiger Woods, run at Kingston Heath. But I think the format of playing, which is a bit like the Blitz Golf thing, the, the, the Sandbelt tournament felt like four different tournaments. Mm. Well, Kingston Heath was a different vibe to Royal Melbourne. Which was different to Yarra, which was different to Peninsula, and it felt like you were going to a different torment every day. So, yet yet it culminated in one semi-tall torment. So I think that's a really potentially a good format. So so if we can kind of you know pull it off and make a decent tournament out of that, then I think it's going to be good. But it, but it's, we're never going to pay anyone any appearance money. It's going to rely on Min Moo Lee and Minji and Hannah and Kari and Sue and. Adam, you know, and, and, and Jeff twisting a few arms behind players' backs at Augusta in, in in April when he's over there to, you know, we need you guys to come back and play. And it's always going to be a limited field. You know, it's going to be maybe 40 pros because the idea is to, it's really a mentorship thing where the best players in Australia come back and play with the best kids. So Adam Scott plays with Amelia Harris and she like, loads of brains out because she's playing with Adam Scott but he but she gets to spend four hours with Adam or 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 Jeff or whoever and she played with Peter Fowler this year and um she gets to learn how to play golf and gets to watch how those guys go about their business so by the time she's 20 and she's played with Carrie Webb and she's played with Sue and she's played with Hannah Green in the Sandbelt tournament at Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath by the time she's 20 she's ready to go you know they've taught her everything they know so that's kind of the idea behind it. So I think it's a great story to sell. It's mixed golf. I think if you can't get corporate golf to back it, then there's no hope for corporate golf in Australia then. But, you know, I think if you know, we can get um, as passionate as Frank Williams and David Inglis were about the Masters, about the Sandbelt tournament, then I think we can create something that's really good. But it's going to rely on the, our best players coming back and supporting it. And if they don't support it, then it'll go somewhere, but it's not going to go as far as it can.
1: Do you think, Clyde's uh, obviously, it exists to varying degrees. Uh, not at all in some, and probably far stronger in others. But do you think there still is a, a, a an innate sense of responsibility amongst those players to give back and and to try and make themselves available where possible to come and and provide, um, you know, that level of mentorship you spoke about. You know, we spoke about it a little earlier in this week specific to the TPS Murray River, but that Saturday round that young Sheridan Clancy from Lake Caranup Golf Club played with Hannah Green, I would imagine in years to come will have done more for her development over those four hours than any amount of time on the range at Lake Caranup simply by osmosis and by playing alongside one of the best players in the world. But as you say, it relies on their drive to come back and give back. And it seems, as I said, to varying degrees, exists certainly like a burning fire in summer. You think of the examples of the stories we've heard over guys like Jed Morgan and Louis Dobler spending, you know, three or four weeks over at Cam Smith's place. He hosts them in Florida and what that does for them. But it's, it's not everyone, is it, who feels that?
2: Well, it's not. And, you know, without mentioning names, I think part of the problem is American player managers who don't do much to encourage their players to go home. And we haven't seen Jason play here for how long since Jason came here. I mean, it's just, years really Mm. and I don't count the President's Cup that doesn't count but coming back and playing the Australian Open and not taking I don't know what he got paid to play the Australian Open but um, you can bet it was handsome a lot (laughs) enough to buy a two-bedroom house in Paran or South Yarra in Melbourne but um, perhaps not you know certainly a
1: two-bedroom apartment back then maybe not now yeah
2: (laughs) uh, but you know I think that you know and you you know no one's you can't force them to come back, but the tour was there for them to start out at because Greg Norman came back and because Peter Thompson and Nagel played every week and Bruce Devlin came back and David Graham came back and Graham Marsh came back and all those guys came back and played. So if this generation decide they're not going to come back and play, then it'll go away. So, you know, again, that's why we started the Sandball tournament. You've got to rely on it on on to play the Australian Open. The women are great. I mean, the women are so much better than the men because they have to be because the men are so pampered and they make so much money and they're so rich now. And there's a the pension scheme that gives them 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars when they're 55 years old that why oh, would you bother to come back and play a, a $1.5 million Australian Open? Mm. Aside from the fact that you might feel an, an obligation to play. But, you know, the women are playing for well, The US Women's Open is, is it 10 million this year, but the average person on the LPGA Tour is two or two and a half million dollars. Maybe, maybe, yeah, you know, the average person is probably two and a half million dollars, maybe two million dollars. So they can't afford to stick their heads up their ass and not come back and play. They've got to come back and, you know, and, and they all have to support the LPGA Tour all around the world. So they all do, and, and it's a great tour. But if they were playing for 10 million dollars a week and they're all super rich and you know, that I wonder if they would feel the same obligation to support the tour but they under, they understand on some level that if they don't all support it it'll go away too but the PGA tour is never going to go away and, the, and the, like I said there are so many guys who are so wealthy on that tour that you know, how much obligation do they feel even to that tour let alone how much obligation do the Australians feel to coming back and playing the Australian Open and the Australian PGA and occasionally playing the Vic Open and you know I don't know. But as we've seen with Mickelson, every uh, action has a consequence.
1: Let's uh, let's talk a bit about your day job. And I've got to be honest, Clay, some, I don't know where you find the time to design and, and build courses in between all of this tournament directing and caddying and riding and podcast appearances, but... There's so much to talk through, not just, uh, I suppose, your catalogue of already completed courses, but all the stuff that's to come. But I kind of want to maybe take it right back to the chicken and egg question. Uh, were you always an architect, you think, that maybe your playing career got in the way of? Or did the architecture build in terms of its passion um, through your playing career? What came first?
2: Well, I was always interested in everything about golf. I'm not, I can't believe I mean, Elvis do not know anything about golf. <laughs> nothing. nothing. These I mean, kids have got no clue about golf. And, I, and in fairness, you know, most of the... Some of the guys... Loved, I mean, Grace, I don't, don't think knew much about the history of golf either. But I was a ferocious reader of the history of golf because history was one thing. My grandfather was a 40-year history teacher at Scotch College in, in Melbourne. You know, it was the only subject I was any good at. So I always had a love of history. So I, I read about the history of golf. So I was always interested in it. So... Um, by osmosis, I guess, I was always interested in architecture. I knew who Alistair Mackenzie was, partly because I grew up in Melbourne, and I, you know, anyone who grew up around rural Melbourne knew that Alistair Mackenzie designed it. But you know, I'd read books about architecture. I had no interest in working in it, but I wrote about it. And there was a superintendent in Melbourne called John Sloan who was he was the superintendent at Woodlands. And I wrote an article about... Um, Sanctuary Cove. It was the second article I ever wrote for the age in Melbourne where I was kind of, you know, my last line was um, "The Sanctuary Cove, it may well prove to be the toughest course in Australia but few will be fooled into thinking it's one of the greatest. And John wrote me a letter and said, I accepted the position as the superintendent at Century Cove that weekend. and I read that article you wrote and I knew you were right. And I rang him up and told him I wasn't going to come. So five years later, we started a business together. And I didn't speak to John between, you know, I didn't know him, I, you know, I said thanks. And, uh, he and a guy called Bruce Grant, who ran the maintenance at the National, um, decided to start an architecture business and asked me if I was interested in getting involved in it. And I was it was 1995. So. They asked me because I'd written about architecture. They liked what I was saying. They liked what I thought. And thought, you know, I'd be a decent guy to partner up with. So that was really how it started. Um, and it was probably a coincidence that I lost my card the next year in Europe. When I was thirty-nine. I played rubbish, and I said to my wife, "Well, you know, let's go home and get stuck into this business." And I loved it. You know, we went to the, all the committee meetings. all I and mean, all the stuff that most people think it was pretty boring. I loved it. I mean, you know, I went to the committee meeting in Victoria every month and we talked about the golf course and we started working there and John and Bruce had some good connections at clubs in Melbourne. So we did master plans for spring Valley and Long Island and Cranbourne and Rosanna. And, you know, so we kind of got started that way, but it was, um, it was something I really enjoyed doing and I loved it. And we, and we, and we got some decent jobs and I think we did some decent work and, you know, so, so it's really been a, it's really been a fun second career really which i think is you know the hardest thing for any professional sportsman golfer or cricket or whatever is to what do you do after it's all over and you you think when you're 25 you know if you're elvis and you you said well, what do you want to do when it's over I think his answer would be well i want to make enough money between now and when I'm 40 so that when I'm 40 I don't have to do anything which sounds like sounds great when you're twenty. Go buy a nice boat and float around and fish, but you'll soon get tired of doing that. Or at least I think I would. So no matter how much money you make, you've got to find something to do after you're forty. And you can do what Bern Langer's doing and you know, be leading on the champions tour when you're sixty four. But, you know, it takes a pretty motivated super person to be still playing as hard as Bern is playing. Well, he started when he was 18 on the tour and he's 64 and he's still, I guarantee you his schedule's exactly the same now as it was in 1978. Every Every day would be exactly the same. So that's a pretty unique individual. So I was lucky enough to fall into, you know, the, the things that I do really. I mean, Caddings only a, you know, I, I, I caddied for Sue at the Australian Open when that was really the start of it, when she was an amateur in 2013 or 14 and we did the Craft Nabisco together and, you know, so I just kind of different players would ask me and I would, um, you know, I'd pick up the bag for a week or two here in Caddy it, And I love doing that, but you know, it's really a four or five week job. That's it. Um, but we're building Seven Mile Beach in Hobart for Matt Goggin at the moment. So I'm down there, you know, every other week, really, which is great fun. I mean, Mike DeVries is down there with Lucas Michelle who played the US Masters last year. Lucas is, on a bulldozer pushing sand around, which is not quite as glamorous as playing the US Masters in the US Open as a US mid amateur champion, but you know, as a US mid amateur champion, so you know, it tells you something about I mean he's twenty eight and his the question is, I mean, COVID's really hurt him. His plan was to go to the tour school two years ago. But he's been trained by Mike DeVries on how to drive a bulldozer and how to shape shape sand and how to shape ground and how to build golf courses. So you know, he's got a choice to make. Do I go down that road or I go down that road? So it's... A, and he's working with a guy called Urien van der Vaart, who's a 35-year-old Dutchman who played the Challenge Tour, played a few Dutch Opens, tried to get on the European Tour. Uh, started working for Frank, Frank Pont, my partner in Clayton de and Pont. And, you know, he's given up playing. And, and he's a... You know, we played a bit when he was in Melbourne three weeks ago. Like, he's really good. But there are lots of guys who are really good. And he's chucked his lot in the architecture bin. So he's on, he he and Lucas are on machines, getting taught by Mike DeVries how to build golf courses. And you don't, you know, there aren't too many better teachers than that. Mm -hmm. And you don't learn that in six months, but you get a good feel for it. And we've, you know, I think we've got some decent work coming up. So they'll go from, once they're finished in Hobart, we'll send them off to jobs around the world. And if they, you know, if they get good at what they're doing and they've got a talent for it, then, You know, it's a. You know, arguably it's a, it's a. I want to say it's it's less precarious way to make a living than playing golf is, but you know, it's still you know, it's not the easiest way to make a living, but it's a great way to make a living if 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 you love it. And and you know, the guys who work for Tom Doak and Gil Hanson, Bill Corr, who could easily go out on their own and start an architecture business, but again, the coolest projects in the world stacking up and, and who, who doesn't want to go out and build amazing golf? And I think that this kind of era will be seen as one that, as it was in the 20s and 30s that produced some amazing golf courses. So for kids like Urian and, and Lucas, it's not the worst career path to go down.
0: We'll have to uh, get Lucas back on the show. He's been on. Three times, Marshy. I think oh, okay, twice, twi- twice, as a guest yeah. and once as a co-host. So we'll
1: yeah, even fill my seat there for one week. So we'll
0: we'll uh, we'll get the goss on what sort of boss you are Clates uh, <laughs> and yeah. how bossy are <laughs> telling you to push uh, barrows of sand around. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They're pretty soft.
0: <laughs> um, I'm gonna ask you a really shitty question that I'm gonna to forget to ask at the end. The yeah. best designed golf course in Australia, what is it? Can't be one of yours, obviously, Clates.
2: Well, oh, well, wouldn't it? Anyway. Well, um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it Royal Melbourne? Is it as simple as that, or yeah, what?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's as simple as that, and there is only one answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing golf course that's built incredibly well, so well that they built a new seventh hole, I think, in the forties. The, the old used to go off the other side of the sixth green and play up the hill. The old green's still there, just in front of the eighth tee. So, Ivo Witten built the new seventh hole in the forties, but and Claude Crockford moved the, uh, the 12th green on the west course across well, well back and left um, in the I don't know when he did that probably in the 50s 40s or 50s but but aside from that the course has essentially been unchanged which shows how incredibly well the Morecambs built it and implemented the principles that Mackenzie won't put on the ground so you know it's not even close for second I don't think well it, you know no, it's not even close for a second. Yeah, it's It's such an amazing place to play golf. it's you know I've been playing there. If I first went there in 1972 to watch the World Cup, I played there in 1974 for the first time and so 48 years ago and it's still it's still as much fun to go there and play as it was then. and that's a pretty rare golf course that, you, that, that you're just as excited as playing 50 years after the first time you played it. so, yeah, and you know, the, the best, I mean, the top 10 in Australia is so much better than it was 40 years ago. I mean, Kingston Heath is, a, you can't imagine how much better Kingston Heath is as a golf course than it was 40 years ago before Graham Grant kind of restored it. You know, putting all the bunkers back at the 15th and the 12th and chopping all the bad trees out of there and regrassing it and getting the greens hard and fast and rebuilding all the tees and, you know, and, you know, we were the architects there for, well, I was for, you know, from, for, for almost 20 years. And so, you know, Victoria is so much better than it was. So the quality of the top 10, 20, 30 courses in Australia is so much better than it was 40 years ago. So, but, but, you know, nothing's really even approached the quality of Royal Melbourne. So hopefully it's Seven Mile Beach, I mean, the land's good enough to do something, <laughs> you know, perhaps in that league i'm never going to say it's going to be better than royal melbourne but you know it certainly sets a phenomenal standard and and one that everyone is striving to reach you know like you know alistair mckenzie spoke about st andrews when someone asked him about cypress point which a lot of people would argue is the best golf course in the world and he's kind of scoffed at the suggestion that cypress point was the you know the best golf course in the world he said Royal Melbourne's the only first-class golf course in the in, in the world. There is no second-class golf, golf course. Cypress Point's a very bad third-class course. <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel a bit that way about Royal Melbourne. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I still think you can make an argument: the old course is the best course in the world. Certainly, one of the best three or four. So, you know, R- Royal Melbourne's kind of the Australian version of that.
0: I think uh, obviously I've, I've not played Royal Melbourne or anywhere in, in the sand belt, but I was over there for the president's cup and it blew me away because I, I probably had very high expectations and it still exceeded the expectations that I went in with just the amount of subtleties, but then not so subtle parts to it. There's bigger Hills than I was expecting. The fairways were probably doubly as wide as I was expecting And I would love to just go back and obviously, yes, play, but just walk around and take all of that in without the grandstands and without watching players and just stand in different positions and see how it all pans out. I'm wondering how important that sort of part of designing a golf course when there is literally nothing there and you know, following Seven Mile Beach at the moment, obviously, a little bit of earthworks happening, but how important is it just... Going and walking around other golf courses without actually taking any sticks out.
2: I think it's really important because you can you, know, you look at how the architects created the greens and the bunkers and how the whole thing ties in together. And I mean, Royal Melbourne is a phenomenal set of greens. And when it comes down to it, you know, the best courses have got great sets of greens. Or most, not perhaps not all of them, but but almost all of them have got phenomenal sets of greens. You look at every one of those greens at Royal Melbourne. It's a masterpiece in, it's a masterclass in what a great, it, you know, individually how great those greens are. So when you go and build a course like Seven Mile Beach, you've got to, you know, you know, for a course to be remotely as good as Royal Melbourne, you've got to build eighteen great greens. So so you've got to find the great green sites and then shape them so well that when you finish, it's like, well, you know, that's an amazing set of greens. But you've also got to get from the to the green with all folk land it's exhilarating and fun and exciting that, that, that keeps you interested and, you know, and there's so many options but you, know, you never play two holes that feel the same which is what Royal melbourne feels like to me it's it's you know, the parts are great but the sum of the parts is amazing as well so, so it's you know it's fine to get the parts right but you gotta drag them all together and make it into, you know, into a coherent, sensible golf course that stretches your mind and your shots. But, but you know, it's a cliche, but it's still playable. But, and, and a, you know, I think people make the, it's a huge mistake to make that people think that a playable golf course for everybody means that every shot's gotta be playable. And that's not true at all. I mean, I mean St Andrews is an incredibly playable golf course, but you put a 45 handicap woman or man in hell bunker or the road bunker or Strath or the Beaties and they can't get out mm. they're done just pick it up and throw it out so you know we fall into this trap of you know people complaining about severe work because every golf course has got some severe work on it and severe holes and severe features any course worth its salt where a player with a incompetent technique isn't isn't going to be able to play it so Seven Mile Beach is going to be incredibly playable, as St Andrews is incredibly playable and Augusta is incredibly playable and Royal Melbourne is incredibly playable, Kingston Heath, all the great courses are incredibly playable. That doesn't mean every shot's playable for the worst players. And I think we tend to fall in that trap. You get, you know, poor players who bitch about individual features and no, that's unfair. And that well, you know, I could show you 15 things at Augusta and St Andrews and Royal Melbourne. That would qualify as unfair if you built them now, <laughs> mm. but because they're so accepted as people, well, they're great courses, so they're beyond criticism. But if you built, you know, if you built the old course now, people would think it was ridiculous,
0: mm. unfair,
2: mm. stupid. You, know, you, you the eleventh hole goes across the seventh. Often the best way to play the fi- the second shot, the fifth hole, the fourteenth hole, is to play it down the fifth fairway. Double greens, you know, bunkers you can't get out of. You know it's complete madness, but it's great.
0: Mm.
2: So if you try and make something that's, you know, fair and pl- fair and playable for everyone, you're going to finish up with the most boring golf course in the
1: world, probably. Yeah, so- very Richard Bland, uh, Clades, I've got a two-parter for you, but I need you to answer the first, um, the first half. Do you still get nervous? After all this time and after all these projects, is there an element of you at the very beginning when you've you've put in a tender, you've won the bid, you are the architect who's in charge? Is there still an element of nerves to know that um, there's a responsibility and expectation at the back end of this that we produce a great course?
2: I get nervous about it. I mean, you you understand the responsibility, but I've never got nervous about because I've always worked with great people. Yeah, so I'm not nervous about said my beach because I know Mike DeVries is one of the best architects in the world and I wasn't nervous about Bamboogle when the only brief was you know from Richard Sattler who didn't play golf was he he said to Tom Doak and I I don't care what you do just don't screw it up (laughs) which is the perfect brief but when you work with Tom and Brian Schneider who was down the shaping who works for Tom then you're not nervous when you're working with guys like that Mm. I always had you know John Sloan and Bruce Grant were phenomenal partners to be with so I was never nervous because I always knew I had great people around me. So, uh, no, I don't get nervous. But like you understand the the expectation and the responsibility not to screw it up, and which is not to say you don't get everything right. But I think we've done a pretty decent job in getting most things right.
1: The second part then um, may have been a little bit more contingent on you saying yes, I do get a little bit nervous. But let me reshape <laughs> it yeah. Uh, yeah. in that sense. So. And noting that it may not be easy to just elevate one above the other, maybe they are the same level of responsibility, but in different ways. But how do you compare, say, the two projects you've just mentioned in Seven Mile Beach and Barn Booga, where you are presented with a phenomenal piece of land, and it's essentially a blank canvas that you know has the potential to be a phenomenal course. How do you compare that responsibility to, say, somewhere like Royal Queensland? Where you've got the legacy of Alistair McKenzie uh, hanging over uh, over that course, it was a unique it was a unique job. But I'm sure, given your love of history and your love yeah. of McKenzie, you, you you felt a sense of responsibility not to walk away from his you know his blueprint that he'd left there so long ago.
2: Yeah, they're kind of I guess different jobs in the sense that one was an existing course, so you've got a a um. A, an existing core of members who expect a lot. Mm. Whereas at Seven Mile Beach and Barmbougal, all we, how we had and all we have is one client mm. who expects a lot. So if you screw up and make a mess of it, no one cares because there are no members. The client cares because it's going to cost him money. But there aren't 1500 members who've been members of a club that's existed for a hundred years and are expecting something really good out of it and, and you're paying and we're paying you pretty well to do it. So in a sense, they're different responsibilities. And, you know, um, I've often said that, you know, if you can't annoy 20% of the members with what you do, you're not even trying. So, you know, <laughs> there's, there's always going to be a core members who criticize what you do, but, you know, I think in time that, that, you know, you know what good stuff is and what bad stuff is. And if you do good stuff, then that's all you can do. But um, yeah, it's a different responsibility because it's a a responsibility to a thousand members or 1500 members versus one client. And they're different responsibilities, but equally weighty really, I guess that kind of answer it a little bit or
0: for sure. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk seven mile beach. uh, uh, I think, this is the most exciting project in Australian golf for quite some time. Um, just looking through on the website, there's some fantastic uh, progress reports from Matt Goggin. Um, the, the piece of land looks absolutely phenomenal. I guess I wonder what, I, I mean, can you give us a timeline, I guess, that you're working towards, and then maybe how good do you think this can be? Because I've heard you describe this, that it could be better than Bam Boogle, which is immensely high praise for a course that is so well loved by the Australian golfing public. Yeah. So how, how good do you think it can be? Where, you know, world rankings, Australian rankings, I mean, is that even a consideration? How does that all come into it? And maybe that timeline you're working towards as well?
2: Well, I think we're kind of in the middle of the next year probably. I mean, Matt, we did a TV thing down there when he was out in five weeks ago, four or five weeks and he said sometime between January 1 and, and December 31. <laughs> so That's kind of But it, it'll be next year. It's um, dramatic. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say better than Bamboogl. Um, I think it's a probably a better piece of land than Bamboogle, only because it's bigger. Barnabugle was such a restricted piece of strip of land between the beach and the, and the farm. So it was great for what it was. It had great movement, all sand, you know, it, it, was, it was a no doubt it was a great site but it was a narrow strip and we' we're, were really restricted in terms of the directions we could go basically it's out and back out and back but um, semi beach is bigger wider broader it gives us more scope to move around so so in that sense it's got a, a chance to be better than barmgle because it's only because it's a better piece of land but you know, are, I, mean, I think it's a, I love it. It's a brilliant golf course. Um, Bill Corr, the, the, the bit of land Bill had for Lost Farms a bit more like the land we've got at said Beach. It's, it's a different shape. So Bill could go in different directions and ch- change angles and, and directions more than we could at Moogle Dunes. So, so it's, you know, they're all great sized. And I think we've got a pretty good routing in fact a really good routing, you walk over it and you get the sense that I think Royal Melbourne's probably got 12 great holes, like great holes as in world-class holes, as in world-class holes sort of in the top 200 holes in the world, perhaps. So I think Seven Mile Beach has got a chance to, there are a lot of holes you walk there that, wow, this is great. This could be great. And if, and if we screw them up, then they won't be great at all. But, but, you know, if we can get them right, then I think it's got a shot at having the same, you know, a similar number of really world-class holes as Royal Melbourne does and perhaps bamboo I would say, you know, talking about sums of parts, Kingston Heath might have one or two world-class holes, but it's a world-class course because the sum of the parts is so impressive. Yeah, you know, it's a great green, great greens, great vegetation, great condition, great routing, some unusual shots, quirky shots. But really if you were pressed to how many holes that Kingston Heath would get in the top two or three hundred in the world, fifteen probably would, sixteen maybe. But and Metro, where I'm a member, you know of love that golf! I've played there for 45 years. Wouldn't have, of course, one world class hole. But it's a terrific golf course. But there's not, it doesn't have, because it doesn't have the land, it doesn't have the great individual holes that, that make something truly world class. So, I, I, I. but I think the land at Sedmont Beach gives us a shot to do that. So it's our responsibility to, to kind of pull that off and make sure that we make the. You know the eighth hole, the great par four, that long par four that it can be, and make three the great, par, great rollicking wild par five that it can be, and ten the great short par four, and we've kind of shaped out the thirteenth holes a short par four, and I think it's, it's like really good. So you know if, if we can kind of cumulatively pull together a decent number of great holes, but make it a sensible golf course at the same time. I think we can do that. And of course, the great thing is it's such a good sight that you walk from, pretty much you walk off one green onto the next tee. So, you know, it's not like you're sort of searching for the next great hole. When Matt and I walked around the land, when it was covered in trees, you know, you couldn't see more than 20 yards, but you still got a sense of, wow, this is really good. But once the trees come off, you you literally pre- you walk off every green and step onto Within five or ten yards, step onto a tee, and there's another great hole, and, and that thing gets repeated eighteen times over to the point where Mike and I walked the West Course, which is still in the pine trees, where where Matt's got the lease to build the second golf course. We walked out the other day, and it's like Mike, Mike, had, Mike had never. It kind of walked it quickly when he first got there. And we spent five hours out there, and it's like he said, "This is like really good." You know, this is like amazing how good this is, and, and it's yet yeah, it's completely different to the to the site we're working on now. But the fifteenth green on the on the west course is literally fifteen yards from the seventh green on the course we're doing now. So the, these two bits of land are right up against each other, but they're really quite different. So it's um. But you but but we you know we walked around this bit of land in in five hours, and we were walking off one green walk five yards across, there's another great hole. And you walk 400 yards or 500 yards or 140 yards, walk five yards, there's another great hole. And, and you just follow your nose right in holes and, well, there's a great course. So, so, so it's a, and Bumbugle Dunes wasn't, it was easiest, but it was not that easy. But, of course, there are also a thousand holes out there at Seven Mile Beach. So, how do you pick out 8, 18 out of, literally, well, you know, literally 500 holes. How do you pick out 18 of them?
0: I think I, I think what's got me excited about this is the proximity to Hobart as well is just so so much of an asset to to a course like this. And hearing you talk about it just makes me more excited to eventually come and play there whenever we're allowed to here in Western Australia in a couple of weeks <laughs> and, when it, <laughs> and when it opens up. But it's just, I think that proximity to such a major capital city is so is going to be so valuable. I mean, Barmburgle is clearly a lot harder to get to than what Seven Mile Beach yeah. is is going to be Cape Wickham is, you know, very, very difficult. To, well, not very difficult, but immensely harder to get to than yeah. Barnburgle again. So, I guess that must be that must make you really excited as well to to know that it's gonna be frequented so uh, regularly being so close to a major capital city.
2: Well, all the all the great remote golf courses starting off with Sandhills in in, in, the, in mm. Nebraska in nineteen ninety three. I mean the, the nearest town's got 400, and 400 people in it. The next nearest town's eighty miles away. I mean there's literally nothing out there. So and then Mike Kaiser's abandoned dunes. Uh, Sand Valley uh, in Wisconsin, Castle Stewart near Inverness, um, Cabot Links, uh, all these great courses that have been built in the last 30 years, they're all remote. Bamboo Hmm. Dunes, Cape Wickham. Tara Eady. They're all in out-of-the-way places, Cape Kidnappers. Um, This is five minutes. Well, it's it's not because they they closed the creek route off from the airport to Seven Mile Beach. You have to go around the airport now. Right, um, so it's 10 minutes from the airport. So <laughs> I could decide with some friends tonight let's go to Hobart tomorrow, jump on a Jetstar flight down there you know, the first flight down there, play 36 holes and, and be home in time for dinner. Take, you know, take the six o'clock plane back. So, you know, that's why it's such an amazing site for a golf course. And it's 25 minutes out of Hobart, 20 minutes out of Hobart so unlike all of these great remote courses it's actually in a city which is not in the middle of america you know, i mean tasmania is remote for what's well, you know it's hard to get to from perth it's it's not that remote from melbourne or sydney but it's remote from los angeles or london but you know i think it's going to be now that tasmania's got the three courses at bamboogle plus Cape Wickham, plus Sydney Beach, and the Sandbelt and the Mornington Peninsula. You know, if the golf nuts want to come out to Australia and from America and Europe and play, what's well, that? You know, it's fifteen pretty darn good courses. So it's a world class trip that we didn't have forty years ago, because you would come mm. and play Royal Melbourne, and. Compared to what they are now, substandard versions of Kinkston, Heath, and Victoria, um, it, it was it was still pretty good, but it wasn't what it is now. You know, it's truly a world class trip now, and it's pretty easy to do. And I mean, you know, Doug's red redone Ocean Course at the National, that uh, the Gunna Matters terrific. The Moon Course is fantastic. I'm not a great lover of the old course, but I understand why people love it, but I love the moon around the Gunnamatta. matter. Sanders Beach is great. You know, you know, port the Surrender, the Dunes. You know, there's so much good golf on the Winter Peninsula. And the two courses of the Peninsula. Uh, 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 I, I keep saying Peninsula. Um, Peninsula Kingswood are, are terrific now. So it, it, it's a phenomenal trip. And of course, we're over. Uh, now you've opened the borders. Mike and, <laughs> Mike and, Mike and Harley Cruz and I are over for Royal Perth in... Two mm. weeks probably. Yes. Yeah, you know, and you talk about, you know, Royal Perth's not in the top hundred in Australia, I don't think anymore. But you know, that's a really interesting job.
0: I you think know, you. Oh, I think you've got your work cut out there, Clates. No, I don't want to say anything too much against no, Royal no, Perth, but I played no, there a little while back, and no, you know, it's, it's it's there's interesting parts to the golf course, and one of my good mates is a member there, and he's really excited to obviously to have your hands on the course. But I think because it is such a flat piece of land, it there's got to be creativity to come with it.
2: Yeah. And it's, I only see upside. And I think that, you know, um, I played Sandringham today mm. and the rebuilt Sandringham, they, they did 18 great greens there. It shows what, I mean, that's a pretty flat, not that interesting piece of land. Mm. And it shows if you build 18 great greens, what you can do. And, and, and Royal Perth's a better site than Sandringham. Than and, you know, I think if you build 18 great greens there, it's all sand. It's flat, so you can use it all. It's a small site, but it's flat, so it's all usable. And it's, um, I think, you, make it, I think you, you, you can make Royal Perth pretty good. I mean, not perhaps top 20 in the country, but, you know, way more interesting and more fun than it is. So, well, and, you know, so in that sense, it's a really interesting job because you know, Royal Perth should be a really good golf course. Royal Perth, for God's sake. Yeah. It should be really good. <laughs> so I'm kind of, you know, I, and I'm interested. I mean, Harley's obviously seen it. I've seen it a lot. Mike DeVee's never seen it. So we've kind of made this pact that we're going to walk the course with Mike but not say a word to him and, and just see what he, and just wait to see what he says and what he sees. Because Mike and I walked Port Ferry about just just after we got here, just before Christmas. And I knew that he would see something that I... I mean, I've worked there for 15 years, walked that course 100 times, and I knew he would see something that I'd never seen before. And he did, and it was like, how can I not see that? It's so obvious. But he'd never seen it. He walked up off the second green, looked backwards down... And the fourth, like, pointed, like, and I'm going, shit, I've never seen that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, so I know Mike's going to see stuff at Raw Perth that I haven't seen. And I've, and I've first played there in 1979, so 40 plus years ago. So um, it's going to be interesting. But I think we can, you know, it's a really cool job because it's all, if it was flat clay, then it's like, not interested. But it's flat. And sand and it's raw Perth and it's
0: and it should be a, it should be way better than it is. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it after yeah. Yeah. you've uh, you've been in there because yeah. WA's got some great courses. So um, you'll have to make time. Every architect that we've had on this show, KM, where do you think I'm going with this question? This point right now, every architect <laughs> that I've ever spoken to on here and Lucas, you can ask Lucas about this, but Lancelin, Lancelin, oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well- is. I, I it's primo money. you need yeah. to get up there we we just need to find an investor mate like i don't know we'll pull on some some of that corporate australia string that we were talking about at the top and we need an investor and we get your hands involved in it because it is uh, uh, yeah unreal unreal well,
2: when harley was working for greg norman he visited a site i think about an hour north of Lancelot. yep i can't remember what it was called
0: like jerry and bay Campbell. or something
2: yeah, I know, yeah, maybe up there somewhere. I mean, I, I, I've never been past Sun City, so don't you? But um, he said you can't believe how good this site is. So he's going to take us up there when we're over. So, but yeah. I mean, all that, that land going up that coast, I mean, you guys kind of, it seems like you guys take it for granted, don't you? I mean, you drive up from Caron to, to Sun City and on the left side of that road as you go north, those amazing dunes they're blowing up and putting houses on it
0: yeah they're all houses now mate
2: i mean how do you get away with that i mean i mean in europe you wouldn't be allowed to build a golf course on it
0: <laughs> no, mate. Just, it's
2: just bizarre.
0: high density living mate that's just what we rock yeah. and roll with here and three and a half hours north of perth but yeah. no if you do get the opportunity go go definitely yeah. go and check out lancelin because i just wish someone can can go and see it because it's got all the hallmarks of a of a friggin' unreal course. And I reckon you with your eyes, would be able to go and see something very special there. So do,
2: do they have any good, any idea how good it is? I don't
0: Football? think so. It's built around a footy oval. So you tee off. <laughs> yeah. It's like... it's in
1: Western Australia. Obviously the football's <laughs> the most important yeah, thing. We'll just of flip, stick a couple of holes around it.
0: I'll come with you, Clates. Don't worry. Just don't, even, don't even have to ask, mate. Right. <laughs> yeah. no, come here. He'll
1: pick you up from the airport. You won't even get to Royal Perth. you will drive Australia to land. <laughs> exactly now, right. Now, is,
2: is it grass greens or sand greens? Grass greens. Grass greens. So grass it was, greens. So it was sand greens. I,
0: th- I, as far as I know, it's always been, it's always gra- been grass. Always been grass. Not, uh-huh. you know, it's not very well. I, I mean, it's well looked after a con- for a country course, okay. um, but yeah, just. Nice wide fairways already existing. um I think it's the fifth hole. It's like a par three that just plays through these two incredible dunes, okay. like a shoot. Okay, I know I'm, I know all the courses, mate. I know all the all the holes at Lancelin. So I'll uh... <laughs>
2: Let's check it out. So so what's um? Let me ask you a question. What's Bremer Bay like? Have you ever been down there?
0: Yeah, Bremer Bay, very good, very nice. Yeah, golf course. I reckon golf course might be right. I've, I don't know that there's a golf course in Bremer Bay though. Yeah, there, yeah, there is. Is a,
2: there? Yeah, yep. There was a guy who sent me pictures of it. There, okay. There was a um, there was a guy who said, "Do you mind if I send you these pictures and just tell me what you think about it?" And I you know, it okay. like a few notes. Which is always easy to tell from
1: pictures on a
0: phone. Yeah,
2: it's, <laughs> it's always easy to tell from pictures on a phone. As well. But um, let me Google Earth
1: it. it. It looked really good.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'll send oh, you some photos of Lancelin.
1: <laughs> it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful part of the world, Bremer Bay.
0: It is, it is very nice part of the world. I've, yeah, I haven't been down there for years, so I, yeah, probably pre my love of golf. Um, so that's exciting that there's some good spots around. Plenty of projects on the go, then, mate.
1: And you want to talk about corporate support? We'll just get you, we'll tee up a meeting with Twiggy. He probably owns the Lancelin plot given how far his country station extends yeah. up there, north of Perth. <laughs> yeah. So let's get it's Twiggy important. to throw some cash at it
0: enormous
2: i'm looking at the course at Bremer bay i've looked at it for years on google earth it looks amazing
1: right on the edge of the the the
0: sea i'll have to have a look
1: check it out on google earth and go i shall i shall it's an untapped resource western australia uh tell you what's not untapped is yourself So we've taken far too much of your time and i barely feel as though we have scratched the surface so uh i mean we didn't even talk about all your wins as a player well we didn't even we didn't even cover that. Yeah, the, the great career with the sticks in hand. Oh, so don't, don't, don't,
2: don't talk about that. That's all right. We will
1: have to uh, we will have to have you back. Maybe once you've had a bye chance bye. to get over to Perth and and, and once you dodge Nathan's calls, he tries to harass you to take you up to Lancelin. Oh, no. We'll have to um have you back on, because as I said we've we've barely scratched the surface tonight, but it's been a wonderful pleasure of ours to Okay. have you on uh, this podcast hopefully the first of, of a few chats and, and really appreciate you taking the time to join okay. us on the 19th team
2: thanks guys i enjoyed it it was fun